Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, and today I am joined by Dr. Anna Simons, who just recently retired as a professor of defense analysis at the Naval Postgraduate School. Prior to teaching at NPS, she was a professor of anthropology at UCLA. She holds a PhD in social anthropology from Harvard University and is the primary author of two influential books, Networks of Dissolution, Somalia Undone, and The Company They Keep, Life Inside the U.S. Army Special Forces. She's also the co-author of The Sovereignty Solution a common sense approach to global security. Anna's focus has been on conflict intervention and the military from an anthropological perspective. Her work examines ties that bind members of groups together, as well as divides which drive groups apart. Some things we think of a lot about with mission critical teams. I first met Anna uh, back in 2013 at Fort Bragg, when we were both presenting to a group for General Cleveland at the John F. Kennedy Center, I was a few years into my doctoral work at that period and was fascinated by the work she had done on the anthropological perspective of her approach to looking at how special forces came together, um, worked together, et cetera. And Anna, thanks and welcome very much to the team cast. Thank you, Preston. Where are you calling in from? I'm retired and living up in Montana. Before. We did all of this way before Yellowstone made this the, uh, you know, come to or go to place. Okay. So, so you went away and now you have all these tourists. Yeah. Well, where we are, and it's a little bit of a story, but we migrated further east. So we used to come up. I used to pretend I was a real academic and I could take the summers and come up here because Monterey, California has a very un-American kind of summer where you have to dress in fleece all the time. <laughs> and Monterey also happens to be a place that's it's probably the worst place for freshwater fishing in the United States. Okay. So we would flee up here to Montana. And so this is where, as soon as I retired, this is where we knew we were moving. Got it. So let's let's go back and start at the beginning. How does somebody who gets a PhD in anthropology from Harvard University end up walking the, the woods in North Carolina with a bunch of special forces guys? Well, interestingly, I didn't have my PhD yet. I didn't have my doctorate. I was doing my field work, my dissertation work, actually, in Somalia before anybody had ever heard of the country. In fact, I came back partway through and people asked me how Samoa was going because that's that's what people knew. Somalia wasn't a household word at the time. The short version of the story is there happened to be a MTT, a mobile training team. It was the last one that was in Somalia before, as things were beginning to fall apart. And it was three NCOs and an officer. And that was my first interaction with special forces. And fast forward just a little bit, I ended up marrying one of them, have been with him ever since. But that was my introduction to SF. 
I had read the Brotherhood of War series just before I went to Somalia. That was sort of accidental. So I had a little bit of an idea of who I thought these guys were. But it wasn't until I actually got to know them in Somalia that I found them to be a lot more interesting than the press about them seemed to imply. You know, they were extraordinarily generous and helpful and very smart. And this was during the Rambo era, and they were nothing like the caricatures of Green Berets that you saw. It was sort of like the equivalent back then of all the stuff about SEALs today, or a lot of the stuff about SEALs today. I mean, yep. this was in the late late 80s. So this is the before the Battle of Mogadishu. Yes, well before. So this was 1988, 1989. Okay, um, And it's not to say in the... The four guys who were over there when I met them, they were there after another four guys had been there before them, who who actually were fairly badly behaved. And, you know, for anybody who's familiar with some of the stuff that's in the news these days about what guys can get up to overseas, that group, they were poster boys for that sort of bad behavior. So early on, I saw bad stuff, but then I also saw extraordinarily good stuff. That's also been my experience when I go to the teams is the majority of teams that I interact with, especially in in military special operations, tend to be really smart guys that tend to be self very self-deprecating and not acknowledge that they're very smart. And there's a minority of bad actors that are still out there and are going to be because of the nature of, of the job and who we're selecting for and the process and everything else. I'm not sure we can ever escape that, but I think what we can do is try to reduce it to the to the margins. Yes, no, absolutely. I totally agree. And so this is one of the things that's fascinated me from the very beginning. Well, let me back up half a second and say, I'm always struck by how little attention gets paid to the military, United States military writ large, as the greatest sort of social experiment that's ever been run. And there should be a lot more social scientists over the years who would have been interested in, you've got these identically organized units multiples of them. And so you could really study human behavior and dynamics and the nature of dynamics and what makes for a tight team, what makes for a sort of dysfunctional team, what makes for a team that sticks to the mission, what makes for, I mean, all of these things. This is the greatest lab that's ever been invented for looking at human behavior. And the thing that's always struck me is, so the physics the, the military society, well, the, the military gets the physics of it and pays a lot of attention to, we need two of this type, you know, two medics or two communications guys or two, the structure, the structure is very well thought out. But what nobody can do so far, and I don't actually believe anybody's ever going to be able to do this, is get the chemistry exactly right in advance. And the chemistry on a team among a bunch of guys, and we can talk about what the introduction of women might do when we get, you know, when we when it comes to rituals later on. Yep. The chemistry among a bunch of guys is absolutely essential to the team actually being able to cohere and do a phenomenal job or cohere and go off the rails, right? Or yep. any one of a number of other things. 
And so where the critical mass is on the team, sometimes it's just a couple of guys who are the ringleaders. And it doesn't mean that they represent the formal hierarchy. There are always these informal hierarchies in any kind of group setting. And so to me, this is the really fascinating thing about teams and small groups or small units. Yeah, I think a couple of things that that jump out at me as you're describing all of that is, you know, one of the things I've always said about the military and medicine, actually, emergency medicine, trauma medicine, is that those two entities, those two social organizations, encounter all social change first. So everything that we are going to be talking about, whether it be women or race or religion or class, those organizations will have to negotiate first because of the nature of the work they're doing and who's populating them. And I always, to your point about the lab, I think there's a lot that we can learn about the the good and the bad of that messy process, what worked and what didn't in that particular context. Not everything is, is extrapolated. But the other thing that you said, which I always found, I still find really interesting is in many of the mission critical teams, the selection process is an individual selection process, but it's an individual selection process for people who are destined to work on teams. And there are some that do better at this than others. There are some that that are ingrained in a team mindset, and there are others who are still selecting individuals. And I've, and, and I've always been fascinated about that. And I've always thought, I wonder from an anthropological point of view, how you think about that, let's call it disparity. No, that's a great question. And then there's a there's a important postscript to all of this also for special forces. And so um, make me say something about that in a second. The other thing that's a little bit, I don't know whether it's perverse or not, and I don't know whether counterintuitive is the right word either. But even selections that are choosing people who can work on teams, that's not the team they're going to end up working on. Right. Right. Yeah. So so you're being chosen for your flexibility and your ability to work with nine or 10 or four or five or whatever the number is, other individuals. And again, it comes back to that chemistry thing. Sometimes even during selection, that's going to work really well just because of the luck of the draw in terms of the people that you're being selected with or that you're being assessed alongside. And sometimes you're screwed from the very beginning if something is off about that dynamic if the dynamic actually involves you being assessed alongside other people. So it's a little bit weird, but clearly, well, I've always said this about selection. I still think, in fact, I was having a conversation with my husband last night. I still think for what Bud, Navy SEAL selection, used to select for, and maybe does again, which is guys who are capable of being in the water by themselves at night when they're sharks and they can still function absolutely fine. That selection or assessment puts guys in that situation and that's what SEALs used to have to be capable of doing. And other assessments and selections don't necessarily put people into the kind of environment in which they're actually going to be working later as part of assessment and selection, and I think that's a huge mistake. Navy SEALs were not cut out to be advisors over in Afghanistan or Iraq or any of the rest of that stuff. That's not what they were selected for. That's not what assessment assessed them for. And yet that's what they ended up getting stuck doing, and that's a a total misfit. So I guess if I try to say this more succinctly, assessment and selection has to come as close as possible to reproducing or simulating 
what it is that it's actually assessing and selecting for. And not all assessments and selections do that. And I think that's a mistake. Well, that's really interesting. It might be related to the postscript that you were going to comment on with the special forces. Right. So for everybody who may not be aware, there are all of these distinctions among all the special operations forces communities. And special forces, commonly called Green Berets, have always prided themselves, touted themselves, and historically been oriented toward working with foreign forces, either government forces and foreign militaries, or insurgents and surrogates and proxies and others. So that dimension of being able to work with non-Americans is really, 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 really important. And there are huge differences if you go around the world And people, in general, have affinities for different sets of societies. So there are some people who are wired to be able to work much better because they like Asians more than they say they would like, I don't know, people in Latin America or Northern Europeans or whoever else it is. And that's also never been taken into account in terms of, you know, this business of Who are people being assessed and selected to be able to fit? Is it to fit with 11 other Americans on a team? Is it to fit with 11 other Americans on a team who can also work with Somalis or Sudanese or Syrians or Burmese? That's never really been assessed and selected. And to me, that's always been a crying shame because, as I say, the closer you can get assessment and selection to what it is that you're assessing and selecting for, the fewer problems you end up having later. Oh, yeah, 100% agreed. And there's an added element to this, which is what Green Berets were originally, as you pointed out earlier, originally designed to do, right? Foreign internal defense or training operators, they haven't been doing for 20 years primarily. I mean, they still, let me me restate that. That's not true. They, They have continued to do that. But in addition, a big part of what they've been doing is direct action. And so there's a whole generation of people who define themselves, their lived experience as Green Berets, as people that do direct action. And when they're told to go back to this other role, like SEAL to being told to go back to the water, they're like, who are you talking to? That's not who we are and what we do without realizing, yeah, actually it is. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, the irony is, Preston, that um, in the early 90s, you know, I went and I talked to a friend of mine, had he come talk to people at RAND, and it was all about the DA fid schizophrenia. So even back then, before 9-11, direct action is always the sexy, easy thing that it's the default for anybody who signs up for the combat arms because it involves direct action combat. And, you know, we could go down our entire chain talking about well, how has special forces recruited and what has been advertised and what is it used to sort of appeal to young, not just young men now, but presumably young women. It's all the ninja, Velcro, jumping out of planes, shooting guns, all the rest of that stuff. And initially that was sort of, um, I don't want to say it was ever an afterthought when special forces was first stood up, but it was really sabotage, sneakiness, wiliness. How do you create resistance and stay behind forces or stay behind or populations in Eastern Europe? It had a very different 
origin than what has transpired over not just the last two decades, but I would say even the last three decades. And it's because this direct action stuff is, I mean, I call it combat like catnip for anybody who joins the combat arms. Now, granted, a lot of guys who've seen a lot of combat, okay, that's enough already. I don't need to see anymore. I don't want to see anymore. Well, that then should potentially become your recruiting pool out of that group that doesn't need to make sure that they actually are in a firefight if they haven't been in one before, because it has a warping effect. Yep. And, you know, it's also what I often think about pararescue or combat controllers, you know, at the most elite level, what makes them unique is that they're not actually selected to work on an intact team. They will not leave us on their own team. They will always be seconded to another team and their currency is their ability. It doesn't matter how good of a paramedic they are. For example, as a PJ, if they're not able to gain peer acceptance within their receiving team, Navy SEALs or Green Berets or whoever, they're no use to the country. And that's a very different model than an intact team of a platoon or whatever it is for SEALs or Green Berets or Rangers that all know each other, can finish each other's sentences and go abroad together. And, and to your point about selection, it creates very different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I, I've, I've only known those guys in the classroom. So I've never spent any time really, I mean, I've seen them a little bit overseas with ODAs and things like that with special forces teams. But I don't know, I don't know that community very well at all. But no, I mean, I've heard them say, Also, they have to be capable of so much other stuff in addition to what you're talking about, which is this business of how do you almost instantaneously fit in and earn enough respect that you're one of the rest of the group? Yeah. I recently was having a conversation with General Sontag, who was running the Green Berets for a period of years where after General Cleveland, where you and I met, and one of the things that that I was asking him about was some of the myths versus realities. And basically the point I made was when the Special Forces Qualification Course, FQC, SFQC, was first started in 1966, it was 16 weeks long. And it went from 16 weeks to 16 months by the late 80s or late 90s. And when you look at something that that's large and you were originally selecting for 1,500 people and now there's 15,000 Green Berets, That creates its own problem set because that many people, just human dynamics, you're going to get a lot of different subgroups. But the biggest problem I was trying to to point out, what I'm trying to get to here is there's a famous song, The Ballad of the Green Beret, right? And Mm -hmm. one of the lines is, of every hundred people that, that apply, only three make it. Well, that's a 3% acceptance rate. And even if that's myth, and that actually was never true, but let's just say it's true, the number of people you'd have to select for for 15,000 people at a 3% acceptance rate is actually not possible. But why I'm bringing all this up is not because anyone claiming it is, except for... There's a group of alumni Green Berets who actually believe all that. They believe their experiences that were direct combat. They believe they have high that high selection. Anything that is not that is a betrayal, even though it was never true. And so with a group this big, you're always balancing the sort of truths and facts against the myths and legends. Yes, and there are a lot of myths and, and legends and the whole lionization of soft over the last two decades has quite honestly not been good for it. 
That's right. And, you know, there are many arguments you made. I was going to do this at the, at the end because I just read it yesterday. It just arrived because it just got published yesterday. Chris Miller's book, Soldier Secretary. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's the fastest read on the planet. I mean, I literally read the whole book yesterday. It's great in many, many ways. First, because it's very readable and he's quite he's very honest. And he reflects back on sort of pre 9-11 and then the 20 years after 9-11, and then his most recent experiences. So anyway, I highly recommend it. But by the end, he comes to the same conclusion that I think anybody who is really honest about soft comes to, which is, he doesn't go as far as I would go, but it's got to be it's got to be much smaller. I would say it needs to be rethought again. He talks about restarting sort of intelligence agencies and stuff like that, basically restarting them, if not from scratch, well, starting them from scratch. But I think it's always an interesting thought experiment. And I tried to get guys to write theses about this. Uh, they were postgraduate school. If you were to construct a special operations entity from scratch today in the 21st century, post-Cold War, with the existence of jihadis and terrorism and transnational crime and all the rest of it, what would it look like today? If you started over from scratch, how different would it look from this legacy, I mean, this great legacy set of institutions, which after all now are 70 plus years old. And I don't know if reconceiving things while they exist, you know, in other words, you're going to sort of change the clues. I don't know if that's going to suffice for the future. Yeah, I, I also think a great deal about this and get, get asked about it pretty regularly. And I have many of the same sort of opinions that you have on this. I think we're way, way too big, but it's not just the operators. There's also oh, just right. the sheer right. logistics right. footprint. Right. So you've got, right. like, right. if you look at some of the special mission units, for example, that started, no kidding, with 60 or 70 people, their compounds are up plus 1,500 to 2,000 people. Not every one of those people are operators. In fact, most aren't. Most are logistics and enablers and supporters and government service folks. But government service folks to the point where there's now a term for them, which is the GS mafia, government service mafia. And what we're seeing, and we've actually seen it come out in the public recently in some articles, where as some officers in special operations who have tried to rein in the GS mafia have been publicly taken down in leaked newspaper articles. And to your point, if we don't actually strip this down and get rid of not only the dead weight of operators that have that have should have retired a while back or were never fit to be there, and all of this sort of, what do you call them, but the, the like functionaries that aren't actually adding to the fight, we're going to drown under the sheer weight of it. Yep. No, there's so many ironies in all of this. So one of them is it's almost a parallel to what we're seeing with education systems. Whether you're talking about public education in the country, any town or city you can think of where the administrators now not only outnumber the teachers, but they become a burden for the teachers. That's right. Right? right. They're basically crapping up the education system. Yeah. And so this is almost like a weird parallel. If you talk about, I mean, so if we go back to assessment and selection for half a second, why is there so much micromanagement? Why is there so little trust from on high yeah. of actual operators? Well, maybe it's because assessment and selection is sort of bringing in some people that shouldn't be brought in because you've 
bumped up the numbers. But if you actually trusted your operators and the officers who lead them, what should you be able to do? They should be able to operate on their own without constantly having to report back to the mothership, not only report back to the mothership, but I can't tell you, I mean, I was blown away the first time I went to Afghanistan and was down with an ODA and how much time those guys were spending so much time on their laptops or computer screens putting together storyboards and describing what it is that they were doing. They were spending more time doing that nonsense than they were actually out interacting with anybody who might have been an Afghan. It truly was mind-blowing to me. And I think from what I saw over the years, it only got worse. It's all about massaging the story and making the story sort of catchy and interesting. And it's all about the narrative. Well, that's a bunch of BS. No, it's all about what you can actually accomplish on the ground, which means you have to be, or with other people, which means you have to be allowed to do that, which means the requirements for you to constantly report what you're doing and check in with the lawyers and everybody else. That's just, it's all upside down. It's been turned totally upside down. And part of it is numbers. And that goes back to, I mean, you know, there's a whole feedback set of feedback loops with assessment and selection. It's really sad and it's really detrimental. I mean, I joked with guys recently who I talked to and stuff still and just did a project for somebody in the OSD in the Pentagon. Maybe it's time, well, I would say that once you retire as a general, go away. Yeah. Go get another life. No more, I mean, you had your chance to make changes and fixes and get things the way you wanted. And if you did that, great. And if you weren't able to do that, well, you had your opportunity. But I don't want to say that they're all dead weight as well, because they aren't. But let them be consulted. Let the guys ask them if and when they need some historic knowledge or if and when they need some advice. But for all of them to hover over thoughts still with their finger in the pie and working as contractors or sitting on boards, defense uh, industry boards and all the rest of it. It's really bad. Okay. Now I'm editorializing. No worries. I will say not at all. I would say that there's a couple of different paradoxes, right? And one of them is that if you look at the Green Berets or if you look at the SEALs or if you look at any of the special operations, typically the people that are saying, I'm speaking on behalf of the SEALs are people the SEALs themselves would, are the last people the SEALs themselves would have them speaking on their behalf, right? But because they're discrete professionals, they can't contradict it. So they're always the victim of the sort of loudmouth idiot. And they're never allowed to sort of say publicly, we don't agree with any of that, right? And the truth is, is that a lot of special operations have this reputation as being sort of like knuckle-dragging savages because people are profiting off of that brand. But if you go and talk to them, most aren't actually like that. They're pretty smart. They're pretty precision. They're pretty detail-oriented. And they're professionals. And and that always bums me out when I I listen on the news or something and somebody's like, oh, I'm the Navy SEAL who speaks on X. I'm like, please stop. Like, that's A, not true, and B, not helpful. The other paradox that I'm always fascinated by, and I've seen this happen now a few times in the last year or two, much to my great sorrow, is for years now, and I mean decades, the the instructional 
sort of schoolhouse instructor cadre is often been treated as the dumping ground for the people they don't know what to do with. So the teams don't want mm-hmm. them, so they go to the schoolhouse. So then they do what mm-hmm. you'd expect them to do, which isn't really great because mm-hmm. there isn't really a good instructor cadre course. Most of it is for the conventional military, which is not really what they're trying to create. And then what ends up happening is something happens, right? Something happens where a kid dies or a kid gets injured or something. And all of a sudden, the easiest solution is to shoot the cadre in the face. And I'm always like that particular narrative, which is we're not going to actually prepare you to move from being an operator to an instructor because just because you can do something doesn't mean you could teach something. And then once you get there, by the way, if you blow it, we're going to we're just going to hold you accountable without really helping you figure out how to avoid that particular problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there are a couple strands to that. And one is, who do you want to be your cadre members, your instructors, your assessors, and all the rest of it? I mean, do you want it to be people who teams have sort of shuffled around because they don't quite work on a team? So they're not necessarily your best. Now, they may be very talented as instructors. Sometimes you get people who don't quite fit in one place, but they're going to turn out to be great somewhere else. And you know what they say about all of us who are teachers. We're teachers because we can't do, right? So some people maybe can teach better than they can do. But on the whole, the history, the legacy has always been that that's where you funnel people that you don't really want around operating anymore. So that's something that's not good or healthy for an organization at all. And, you know, if you go back and look at Rangers and RASP and the fact that they have to, they reselect, you know, an officer to go back to the Ranger regiment has to be reassessed and reselected all over again. I always thought that that was a great model and it probably should exist across the board in terms of just because you get your Trident or just because you get your tab doesn't mean that for life, you're the right person anymore for that organization and you can sort of, and you can coast. But to what I think is your point or an add-on to your point, Preston, you need to front load the things that are most important to front load are assessment and selection and how you bring people into the fold. The instruction in terms of whether it's the Q course or whether it's BUDS or whatever it is, It's going to bring people into the fold. Nothing is more important than those two sets of things because that sets you up for success. But it also means if you're strict about getting rid of duds. I mean, guys, we talk about this all the time. What happens to a dud, a dud on a team? Well, he goes up to the B team. I mean, you know, he goes up and he works on staff and then he gets shuffled back um, to some other team who has to try to figure out how they get rid of them. And so organizations tend not to flush people when they actually should, both for their own good, but more importantly, for the organization's good, if all of that makes sense. Yeah, it makes it makes heaps and heaps of sense. It brings up a lot of these things that we're not really paying attention to. And one of them, let me let me say it this way. If you go to any leader of any special missions, special operations unit in any of the five I countries, UK, Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada, and you ask them the following question, if somebody does well as an instructor in the schoolhouse, do they end up becoming a better leader when they're rotated back? And the answer is 100% yes, without hesitation. I've never had a leader hesitate in answering that question. They're like, yeah, if they come to the schoolhouse and do well, actually practice and learn how to develop others, 
it necessarily makes them a better leader when they return back to run a team. Any thoughts on that? No, and that makes total sense. And then look at how the Marine Corps does stuff. You know, the Marine Corps is brilliant at a couple of different things. Well, more than a couple. But one of the things it does really well is, so this is a, this is a slight side note, but it picks great people as recruiters. And if yeah. you pick great people as recruiters, then the, those recruiters are likely, I mean, you know, it's as everybody says, you choose other people who are sort of like you, they're going to find quality, but quality, more importantly, is going to be attracted to them, right? They become yeah. incredibly important role models and they're people's first interaction with the Marine Corps. But the Marine Corps does the same thing, I believe, or at least it has in the past in terms of who it has instructing in it schools. So, and it used to be even in the army under certain people or under certain leaders that, you know, your best, your most promising officers, most promising NCOs went and became, were sent to go instruct at the schoolhouse. And to your point, when you have to explain something and when you're looking out, you know, this from teaching, right? And you've got challenging students or challenging candidates were sitting out there asking you very sort of deep, without even realizing it, sometimes they're very deep questions to which you don't have the answer. It causes you to have to think about things very differently. It also gives guys time to synthesize and reflect in a very different way than if they're constantly, okay, you're operating, you're doing all of this stuff, you're going over, you're deploying, you're coming home, you're with your family for a while, and you're getting ready to redeploy. It's like, it's a, it's a very important break also, because it allows people to stretch different sets of muscles, which are very, very, very important. I agree with you, especially for leading. One of the big sorrows that I've had is that what's happened is there were once upon a time, and maybe it was never true, maybe it's just been a myth, but it used to be that when you were doing many deployments, especially over the last 20 years, and you rotated back to do a tour at the schoolhouse, it meant that you'd get more time, exactly like you said, to reflect, to spend time with your family, et cetera, et cetera. And what ended up happening was it was instead the opposite happens, meaning that you were coming in and they were having you work such long hours and such long weeks that it was actually worse because while you were living at home, you were only coming in to like change clothes, take a shower, get some sleep and get back out again. And it was almost worse than being deployed. And one of the things that I, I'm constantly frustrated about is the tempo, the unnecessary tempo that some of yep. these yep. folks yep. run their yep. contract. Yep. So two comments on the tempo. Well, one of the reasons why, so it's a great point about the cadre and instructors and stuff like that, but that's because the throughput grew so much, right? Because if you're trying to pump out all of these numbers, you need more cadre or more instructors, but you don't have more. And so you require them to work longer hours. So it all goes back. I mean, I've think a lot of this goes back to just the size problem. That's a huge misfit or misalignment. It's a set of misalignment problems. But then to the other point about being able to reflect and synthesize and think and stuff like that, that is what school also helped to represent. So I know when guys came to our program at Naval Postgraduate School, it was a great time for them to be able to reconnect with family and to stop and breathe and think and all the rest of it for a certain period of time, though. But there's a sweet spot there because you want people to continue to learn, right? And not just view it as a 
hey, everybody, wink, wink, is going to allow us to take a break. And we don't really have to necessarily be serious about this stuff. Fortunately, most of the classes were extremely, the cohorts were extremely serious about school. And it was a ton of fun because I also think that they reconnected with getting to read and maybe they didn't like writing so much. And this was in the pre-chat GPT or whatever it is era. So they actually had to do the writing themselves which was extremely painful, but an interesting ritual for them. And when classes, you could see it. I mean, I can go back through the last the 20 years of cohorts that I taught, and there was nothing more fun for them or for me than when they wanted to be smart and when they wanted to sound smart and when they knew who people in, the, in their class, their classmates, which of their classmates were smart on which topics, and they turned to them and they looked to them. This is the total opposite from the, as you were saying before, the (laughs) we're just knuckle draggers. We're really not very smart. We don't like to read. That's a bunch of crap. I mean, it's not entirely crap, but what you want is you want everybody you want. So this is group dynamics again, wherever the critical mass is in the group, usually at the least common denominator is very low. And that's the critical mass. You know, they've got the strong personalities in the group. The group sinks to that level. If you've got a critical mass where, you know, guys are very engaged and they want to be regionally smart and they want to keep pushing the envelope in terms of being creative thinkers and all the rest of it, it's amazing how high that group can rise together. I mean, it's it's, it's really... And I I think... You know, one of the compliments, I'm a, I'm a public and, and Will, uh, I've often said publicly what a big fan I am of Naval Postgraduate School. And there's a number of reasons for that. And one of them is, is the mix of civilian and military instructors. It's not a retirement center for colonels and generals as some of the other professional military schools are. And it's also a mixed cohort, which is you're not just going with your own tribe, and we'll come back to that word in a second, but you're going with a mix of group of people that gets you, while they're similar, they're they're very diverse in where they're coming from. And you're asked to really think. Now, to your point, we know from Art Finch and other people that the predominance of things like dyslexia, ADHD, and other things in special operations is quite high. What used to be called learning disabilities and now just called learning profiles. But those aren't correlated to intelligence. And so often we have to take people that are very smart but can't manifest it in traditional ways and give them the tools to express themselves either verbally or through writing to communicate really how clever they are, how smart they are, how much they've given real thought to this and their experience as it connects to theory. And I and I think I just wanted to say that I'm a huge fan of NPS for doing that. Right. No, it was a best job in the world and a, and a total privilege for all of the reasons that you say, which doesn't mean that there aren't a few like, uh, I would say, disturbing. Well, let me just try this out on you because I know this, you know, about the, yes, I've always been a huge fan of the whole idea that there are multiple intelligences. I think that's indisputable. I mean, so I'm old school and I think of it in the Howard Gardner terms. And one of the things that I found or I saw over the years is that the guys are, some of them tend to be great at verbal communication, yep. right? Basically at being salesmen and yep. building rapport and all the rest of that sort of stuff. Extremely transactionally oriented. Yeah. But I think as a society that we've become 
as a society so transactionally oriented that we sort of give transactionalism itself a huge, I don't want to say boost, that's not the right word, but here's where I'm going with this. If what you need to do overseas is actually work closely with the counterpart as an advisor, taking a transactional approach is going to cut it less and less, even though our society is becoming far more transactional in how we all deal with each other. And the reason why I say that is because relationships at least in the non-West where that I'm most familiar with, are based on trust. And the more transactionally we behave, the more opportunistic we turn the people that we're trying to work with. And it's a bad combination. So some of this, in terms of how all of this stuff aligns over time, is not necessarily good. Yeah, agreed. Um, if that makes sense. It makes total sense, and it actually brings us to this next point, which is a term you and I have just talked about a lot, which is the concept of tribe or tribalism. And it's something that gets bandied around quite a bit, both because of behaviors and labels and its relation to indigenous people, et cetera, et cetera. And then the teams themselves often have you know, symbols of, of tribes, whether they be Vikings or Native Americans or others, on their shields, right. on their brands and everything else except it's more complicated than that. However, even though it's more complicated, some of what you're talking about, this transactional us versus them, we're not together. That's all part of it. And I wanted to, from an anthropological point of view, have you just talk about that for a second. Okay, so I I did think about this a little bit because I knew you, I I mean, I knew you were going to ask. So the interesting thing, I mean, I've written stuff in the past about everybody gets the word tribe wrong over here. Well, first of all, I should preface this by in the politically correct or woke world in which we live. But I mean, even in anthropology, tribe has been a bad word for a while. I still use it because, you know, when I was over in Africa, people would introduce themselves as, uh, hi, I'm Sam. I'm a, I don't know, a Kamba by tribe. And what was I supposed to say? Oh, no, tribes don't really exist. You know, that's just an intellectual construct, blah, blah, blah. So I've always used the word tribe. And there are different anthropological definitions of tribes. But for me, tribes, the way they exist in the non-West, have a moral obligation. There's a deep sense of moral obligation because the group existed before you came along and the group is going to survive long after you're gone. And your moral obligation isn't just to the living. It's to the not yet born and it's to the dead. And you're tied into these webs of moral obligation. Well, that's not how we think of tribe, right? I mean, when we talk about political tribes these days, there ain't no moral obligation sort of embedded in it. Yeah. But thinking about it, if you stop and think about it, actually, the word does sort of apply to military units where there is a deep moral obligation among the members of the unit, right? Or there should be in terms of not just looking after each other when they're deployed, but taking care of family members if something happens when people come back for years afterwards. The whole Gold Star family, I don't want to call it a phenomenon, but it has been pretty amazing in terms of what we've seen over the last 20 years. So there is a moral obligation to what exists in military units small-scale units. It is very tribal. But the other problem with the word tribe for the military is it implies that everybody's a warrior. Yep. You know, if you belong to a tribe and you're a young male, and, you know, we can talk about 
women differently, but I mean, traditionally in tribes, women were never warriors. It was the guys who were warriors and there are certain expectations of them. But the problem with the word warrior associated with the military is soldiers and Marines and everybody who's in this profession of arms and works for the United States government and Department of Defense is not a friggin' warrior. Warriors always sort of fought as individuals for themselves. They may have been an individual glory was very important and demonstrating bravery was hugely important. And while I think those things are at the root of how men want to behave, even those in uniform, there's a total contradiction in terms between thinking that you belong to this sort of autonomous thing that's not part of this greater military and being a member of a military unit. So to really get at your question, which is, you know, we're going to be Vikings, we're going to be pirates, we're going to be sons of anarchy and all the rest of that crap. And that's what I call it. I call it crap. I don't know where it's come from because I don't know why it's not sufficient to be members of an ODA, to be members of a SEAL platoon or a SEAL team. I don't know where it's gone off the rails. But you need so much more embellishment, and it's artificial embellishment beyond that. I mean, I've got some ideas, but it's just weird. It's weird to me. Why isn't it sufficient to just be a member of this particular team, this particular military unit? Why do you need all of that mascot making or whatever we want to call it, emblematization? And then if it's to make you more exclusive, right? And to keep others, to set yourselves apart, I don't know how healthy that is either. So it's, it's what's interesting is, is that what I've often struggled with is that we've got these different, say, let's call them squadrons who will have their own patches, often color-coded, often right. associated with things like pirates or, or, you know, Native Americans or whatever. The problem is, is that when you look at history, that oftentimes when one of those teams goes sideways, it's because what yep. they did was they valued that local brand yep. or emblem or yep. whatever more than the larger entity they were part of. And they started fostering their own value systems separate than the one who was actually employing them. And, and I think that leadership has to be really careful when they're allowing those sub-tribes to exist or whatever we want to call them, those sub-organizations, to make sure that they understand, yeah, that isn't actually who you work for, right? You work for yes, us. And precisely. Yep. Yeah. You want to keep working for us. Yep. Here are the rules. Yeah, no, exactly. And then again, I mean, I would just pose this question back to everybody. Why isn't it enough to be in special forces and a member of a Halo team or a member of a scuba team or, you know, with your I guess it's now, it used to be just three numbers, right? You were, you know, 315 or 317. Now you've got four numbers. But why isn't that enough? And why can't you have enough mystique associated with your four numbers or whatever it is, is the designator of your particular unit or element? Why do you need more? Is it for external consumption? Is it to prove to other people how different you are? Is it to psych yourselves up? Is that really what you need? Is it to psych other people out? It almost, and this probably isn't fair and people can scream at me, but it almost seems like it's a compensation for something else. And that signals 
that there may be other problems that are more deeply rooted. Yeah. So one of the things that we've, you and I have talked about before, and you've talked about in your book, The Company They Keep, is this concept of purpose and place, or what Sue Phillips will call connection and belonging, but this idea of who am I, where do I belong, how do I belong there, who authorizes me to belong there, things like that. And as we're talking about these different subgroups and everything else, I think this question of purpose and place, especially in selection and assessment, or the graduation thereof, becomes really important as, a, as an anthropologist. How do you think about those kind of concepts? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I always used to joke in classes that if you got selection right and the division of labor right, everything else would fall into place. And what I mean by division of labor, I mean, we've sort of talked about assessment and selection, which as I say, that should be front-loaded. The most talented HR people on the planet should be working with soft on figuring out how you do assessment and selection and all the rest of that, your best personnelists and psychs and everything else. But the other piece of this is division of labor. If you think about it, if everybody's got a purpose and they've got a lane and they've got something that they are as good, if not better than others at, then that should help take care of some of the identity problem. You need a little bit of redundancy across soft, right? So, you know, the SEALs can do a little bit of what Special Forces does, and Special Forces maybe can do a little bit of what, I don't know, or the Raiders can do a little bit of what Special Forces does. But the more separate, the more they've got their own specializations and their own lines of work and their own roles and responsibilities, the better off the entire enterprise is. I mean, and something else that hasn't come out yet, well, and something that did come out, I talked about this before, but it's the whole idea of mutual indispensability. If you've got mutual indispensability, which you get with a division of labor that actually divvies up who does what in a very kind of thoughtful way so that there's a little bit of overlap, but there's not so much overlap that everybody's competing with everybody else over missions and all the rest of that sort of stuff then you can have mutual indispensability. And why do the best teams work as well as they do? Because members of that team feel as though they're all mutually indispensable. And to me, I think mutual indispensability is what we need in the I mean, I need, we need it all over the place. But that sense of mutual indispensability, where I can't do my job without you also doing your job, which is not the same as my job, that binds people together in a sort of in a in a bigger team. To add to that, I think you know, the, one of the things that I've often told teams is don't measure yourself by the thing you're not meant to do. And and what I mean by that is that I have an EDD, you have a PhD. You and I are really smart at some stuff. But if you test me on math or you on opera, I don't know if you know opera, we're probably not going to be that good. But if we're in a room of just math people, I'm going to look like a total idiot, right? And so what often happens yeah. is something like direct action will take prominence and then everyone will get evaluated against their ability to do DA, even though that's really not why you're yeah. needed and, and not really what the country needs you to do. Right. And again, part of it's false advertising, right? Because DA is the thing that's always held up and hypnotizes people in yeah. terms of, uh, you know, this is what you, you join. And I mean, I can remember going into headquarters buildings and, you know, what's on the walls. It's all the pictures of all the cool guy stuff, you know, throwing yourself out of a plane, emerging out of the water with scuba gear on, all the rest of it. There are no pictures 
of just sitting in some dusty village somewhere with some guys who might have flip-flops on and carrying AK-47. And yet, that's an incredible, that may be the most important job in some regards, if what we really want is for other countries to be able to police their own sufficiently so that we don't have to do this expeditionary Groundhog Day whack-a-mole stuff forever. One of the things that I've I've spoken about is when people have asked me about the different teams and, and they always say something like, which is the best? And I'm like, it, it's that's a ridiculous question what? because they're designed to do right. different things. And somebody will slag the Marines or slag Green Bracers. And I'll always explain like, well, what you're criticizing them for is not really what they do. And if you actually evaluate them against what they do, they're the best in the world. And I'll give you an example with the Green Berets. The, the reality is, and I'm speaking now as an educator, is there's a phenomenon, I don't know what the name of it is, but if you go to a training course, any canoeing, shooting, driving, whatever, and you take it from, let's say, and I take a course from you, and we go somewhere, and I'm struggling with a problem, and then you walk in the door as the instructor, I'm immediately not only relieved, but I defer to you. And there's a power that instructors have, a soft power that's often misunderstood. And the reality is that Green Berets weld one of the largest levers of soft power the U.S. has because they're the instructors for more than half of the special operations teams in the world. And so if you want access to a part of the world quickly, have a Green Beret Bubba mm -hmm. call up his buddy that he trained in whatever country, and it's sorted. And people don't understand how powerful that is. Absolutely. And we don't make nearly enough of it because, again, that other stuff, that other sexier stuff, right, right, is what draws everybody's attention to include the attention of guys with three and four stars on their shoulders, which is crazy because you can get so much more done through. And again, this goes back to relationships. Yep. And that's really what SF was always in the business to be good at is relationship building. But it's not enough just to build a relationship and then leave six months later or eight months later and never see those people again. It's got to be, I mean, you know, there were all those alliterative terms for a while. We had a, a really good SF student who wrote a, his thesis was, okay, you're saying persistent presence. If you mean persistent presence, then that means we would all be living overseas with our families and maybe that's what we should be doing and here's what it would look like and here's what it would do for the force. Yeah. So there was persistent presence and there was enduring engagement. But the point is that if you're continually sending people to place X and then they come home from place X and you send them to place Y and they come home from place Y and then they go to place Z while you're shooting yourself in the foot, when it comes to the thing that you claim that you're really good at and should be really good at, which is relationship building and keeping those relationships alive. And the other great advantage to keeping relationships alive is through those relationships, you keep your ear, the United States keeps its ear to the ground and should have a far better sense of what's going on overseas than all of the electronic and SIGINT and all the rest of that stuff is going to deliver because you've got a direct pipeline into not only what's going on, but how people feel about what's going on. And your trusted agents in terms of the people that you actually have relationships with and know how to read, know where they're coming from, know why they think what they think and all the rest of it, you can vet information far better that way 
than simply through scarfing up every electronic transmission that floats through the atmosphere. Yeah, these, you know, these shared relationships, these enduring or or long-lasting relationships are often founded, and you think about, you know, the different teams themselves, but certainly working with foreign partners are founded in these rich, immersive experience, these shared adversity, the shared sort of wonderful experiences that, that are unique to that moment in time. And it's it helps me think about this word communitas, which you and I have talked about a lot, which is what you taught me, if I'm getting it wrong, and please correct me, is not just the traditional historical use of communitas, but it also denotes and primarily denotes a feeling, a, a group shared feeling of an understanding or a shared experience. Is that is that accurate? Yes, where you feel where you're involved in some sort of an event. In anthropology, communitas, it's usually, yeah, so some sort of event or some sort of ritual or some sort of rite or some sort of ceremony, and you are part, you realize you're part of something greater than yourself. Yeah. And you may only have that feeling once at that kind of an event or that kind of a right, but you're able to tap back into, you remember that feeling. And so that association remains really strong. So then if you apply this to what you see people doing on deploy, you know, overseas and stuff like that, and what you were talking about in terms of adversity, going to the field adverse conditions or something funny happens or whatever it is, it's a bonding experience. Well, everybody can refer back to that, remember it, and it sort of gives them a sense of or a feeling of communitas long after that's passed. I think that's part of that power so, I was talking about with yeah. instructor cadre, right? Is that they 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 yep. foster these rich experiences that that generate this this feeling of communitas and later can tap back into that when they reconnect in those relationships as long as they haven't been lost too long. Yes, right, right. And then I was thinking about it yesterday. Well, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a while because I've been witnessing this at home for a number of years. And this is where it'll be interesting as women come into the force, what's that going to mean? Because the reason why I bring this up is what's one of the ways in which guys bond and stay bonded? So I think it drives women crazy, or at least it drives this one crazy. It's the same stories you go back and tell every time you see each other, yeah. you're going back and repeating the same stories over and over again. And, you know, there's usually humor involved or there's drama or there's high drama or there's something, but the repeating of this, whenever guys meet, and I think guys do it much more than women do. I could be wrong about this, but that's just my experience to the point where it becomes very boring to sort of wives or to anybody else who's not sort of wasn't part of that whole experience. But what's that doing? That's sort of reminding people, not just verbally, but it's tapping into something much deeper and it's renewing and strengthening and re-strengthening those bonds, I think. I mean, that's just my observation because I'm not a guy and this seems particular to guys much more than it is to women. But this is where somebody can tell me I'm totally wrong about this and I'd listen. I, I think it makes sense to me. I think it makes sense that when I think about my wilderness guides, 
friends who we worked together years ago will come back and tell those stories as a reminder of, yeah, that was us that went through that together. And there's, there are consequences of that, that very few other people understand. And I just want to let you know that I understand, even though you've heard that story, it's, it's an acknowledgement of a, of a shared experience of a, of a fundamental and transformational shared experience that I think reduces one's loneliness. Because I think a lot of times going back to what you were talking about, the transactional nature of humans there's a lot of folks that live in the routine world and don't spend much time in the critical world. And when you meet somebody who has, you kind of want to do that shibboleth of saying, oh, remember that time where we were cold, wet, tired, hungry, and confused, and we were all going to die? And they're like, they laugh, and they're like, yeah. And that's like that way of saying, I get you, and you get me, and now let's move on. Yeah, so why do you, so so back to that other point, Preston, which is then why do you have to have some sort of, uh, I don't know, some emblem or some tattoo or some other kind of thing, you know, as long as you've got that. And it could be, but this is just an off the top of my head kind of thought, which is always dangerous, but it could be that for assisting with stuff like PTSD or uh, some of the things that are associated with it that maybe aren't quite as pronounced, the DOD would get much more bang for its buck if it just, if it arranged some reunions. Right. Or or, or arranged for guys to be able to get together periodically where the burden is not on them to do that. But it's a way of both DOD sort of acknowledging how much they how much they did, but just facilitating that. I mean, if somebody facilitated it now, I can hear people shrieking and saying then they would just F it all up if it was something institutionalized and official. But it does make me wonder if. Guys being able to sort of let their hair down with people that they've let their hair down with before doesn't have a power that may be more useful than some of the other things that are being tried these days. Well, I think what's interesting, I've talked to some people about this, and one of the things that the U.S. actually does very poorly compared to the Commonwealth countries is they don't actually leverage their alumni very well at all. In fact, they often dismiss them. And what the Commonwealth countries will often do is have that alumni association with the mess or with something else. And it's really, really powerful. In the U.S., that used to be the local Legion Hall or or other things, Mm -hmm. the, Mm -hmm. the foreign wars. The problem is those become really drinking establishments for the dysfunctional yep, yep. and the broken. And so yep. your your, yep. your operators yep. who are actually healthy don't want to go there to relive the glory days. Right. So there needs to right. be some right. mechanism. And I think things like CrossFit or other things became a proxy for that to allow people who have had those shared experiences to still do healthy things together. Yeah. But so, and then it raises the question, is it enough to have shared deployment years with other people to get together and let your hair and all the rest of it? Or do you actually have to do it with the people that you served with? And I don't know the answer to that. But I mean, I would just suggest that facilitating groups of guys who spent time together overseas, facilitating their getting back together when it's not for a funeral, or it's not for, you know, some other kind of tragic event, which is what does bring them all back together. That actually might be fairly powerful or useful. I don't know. It's just, I'm, I just throw it out there. It's interesting that you say that, Anna, because I was just saying this to a friend of mine. I was just in the Pentagon for a promotion ceremony and they said, Preston, what are you doing here? Why are you coming to this ceremony? And I was like, because I go to too many funerals. Every once in a while, mm-hmm. I want to go to a promotion or a retirement ceremony to go, you made it. Like, you're still here. We pulled it off. We got you through it. Right. And I think 
that's the kind of celebrations we we probably those rituals, you know, and the, those are the kind of rituals we should probably start paying more attention to because the funerals as a ritual is just it's crushing. Right. And guys have been to too many of them and continue to go to too and, many. Yes. And especially now when in the rear view mirror, the big question is, what was it for? Right. Yep. So because of where we are in terms of what those 20 years have or haven't added up to, and we won't know, it's like Vietnam, right? You yep. don't know. There are people who make the argument now that actually the war was a huge success because it stopped communism and, you know, from creeping forward in Asia and all the rest of it. So we don't, you never know because of how time gets sliced and when you're looking back retrospectively, but at least for the moment, and at least in the wake of what happened with the Afghanistan withdrawal and all the rest of it, some of this stuff is far more important than I think people realize in terms of reminding people that what they did was worthwhile beyond just what they gained as an individual or what they lost as an individual. It's something that needs a lot more attention than it's getting and not in the sappy sort of way that it sometimes gets it. Agreed. As we start to sort of wrap this up and come to a close, and it's been a tremendous honor to talk to you, there's one other thing I wanted just to chat with you about, and it's a conversation that was very influential on my own research, and I wanted to get your take on. When I first, and people have heard this before, but when I first started doing my research and going to the teams, the thing I kept coming over and over to the conclusion was that what mattered almost more importantly than anything was that a candidate was a good fit for that culture, that if they weren't a good fit, it didn't matter how well they could shoot, move, and communicate, because if they didn't fit in, it wouldn't work. And then upon talking to Dr. Adam Grant, the professor from Wharton, he pointed out to me that that's a very dangerous proposition from the following perspective. If you're not careful, a good fit can, and have seen this, has led to the propensity to Mm -hmm. clone yourself, to look for people that are Mm -hmm. just like you. Mm -hmm. What that ends up doing Mm -hmm is you end up with a bunch of people that think the same way you do, which against a technical problem is awesome because you can finish each other's sentences and go really fast, but against an unordered problem or a complex adaptive problem can be really troublesome because you lack what is called neurodiversity, which is different than, you know, social diversity or social justice diversity. Neurodiversity is simply, do I have, am I surrounded by a bunch of people that think differently than I do? And so I say all of that because I don't think it in any way lessens the importance of cultural fit, but it also puts on a burden of having to make sure we don't shoot ourselves in the foot when we're trying to achieve it. Right. So if I can make this make sense, so I wrote something. So, I mean, this is something the Danes organized something and asked me to to write something about the exclusiveness of soft. You know, how do you make an, how do you make exclusive elite entities more inclusive. And this was a number of years ago before sort of wokeness truly infected the world. So diversity had a slightly less loaded meaning. But in thinking about all of this, so there's a paradox in the military. And let me see if I can explain this so, so that it makes sense, or at least not explain it, but talk about it in a way that makes sense. The military is based on a fundamental paradox, which is for the combat arms in particular, Everybody needs to be considered interchangeable because presuming that there's going to be attrition, even just training attrition, but that there's going to be attrition. And at the same time, the military is predicated on everybody needing to think that they are indispensable. 
So the paradox is that the that the bureaucracy has to treat you as though you're interchangeable, but it needs you to also believe that you're indispensable. So that's one thing. But the second thing is that for anybody going in and doing direct action, right, or who's going to engage in combat in any way, shape, or form, I think I don't think this is necessarily an overgeneralization. There has to be reflexive trust among them. People have to be sure. Operators need to be sure that that other person, when stuff really, when the you know what hits the fan, that I don't have to worry that that person next to me is going to be thinking differently than me. That, that I know that I can count on that individual to act the same way that I would act in these circumstances that we find ourselves in. So I call that reflexive trust. And so I think on teams full of operators, the idea of interchangeability and the idea of reflexive trust is hugely important. And in that sense, you need people who can think alike and who do think alike. But The whole idea of a team these days is those operators, it goes back to what you were talking about before, which is, I mean, they they need all sorts of enablers. And that's the bigger team. And in some regards, it's up to the people who are above and beyond the operators themselves to have the insight and the ability to sort of keep them honest and on track when it's possible that they might go off track. In combat, they're not, well, I mean, I know I've read all the, I mean, that code over country, I just read it. And so I know it's possible to go off track in combat conditions. But somehow that interchangeability, reflexive trust is really important. And you want people who don't have a great deal of neuro, I mean, I think you don't have a great deal of neurodiversity because I don't want to have to be second guessing. Are you, because you think differently than me, can I then not count on you? in this novel situation that we find ourselves in. Does that make any sense, Preston? It totally does. And I think I want to be careful here about painting things in the either or. And I want to kind of plus up both your points. I think you're absolutely right that in in a temporally constrained, meaning an urgent environment, and I used to say this to my wilderness guide staff, I would say, look, in a crisis, I need to know where you are without looking. If I have to look over my shoulder to find you, that means you're no longer a staff. Now you're a student. You're no longer a partner. You're now a responsibility. And at that point, I'm now isolated. That's very dangerous. Don't do that. So in a crisis environment, I need you to paint by the numbers. But in a non-crisis, in a routine, larger, temporally unconstrained where we have some time, I actually do want people who are going to present ideas that I wouldn't have considered. We have to talk about the entire life cycle of a team, some of which will be in combat, a lot of which will be working up to get to combat or come home from combat. Whatever the term we would use here, surgery, fire, anything that, that is that immersion event. And so... I think what you're talking about is not so much an either or, but a really finely tailored balance. Yes, yes. And 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 you're saying this makes me laugh only because whenever I ask questions in class, certain kinds of questions, you know, the guys would always say they're all they were mostly officers in the beginning. Right. They would always say, well, that's a leadership problem. You know, right. like everybody always says, well, that's a leadership problem. But in this case, what you're talking about. I actually do think it's a leadership problem or it's a leadership challenge. We know this about individuals, 
No two individuals think the same way. When they start to think the same way, that's because they're molding each other to start to think the same way, right? They're having an effect on each other. And then there's that group effect, that group dynamic chemistry effect. But so this is where, what's the role of an officer? What's the role of a leader? The role of an officer, the role of a leader, it should be, again, back to selection. If you're selecting, the, assessing and selecting the right guys, they've got enough confidence in themselves that their judgment, even though it may be growing and it may be young in the beginning, they've got the potential for good judgment. And so it's sort of up to them to liberate the guys to demonstrate their capability of thinking differently from one another. Because as we know, they do think differently from one another, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't get all the griping and everything else. Everybody would just be happy with going with the flow. And they wouldn't make suggestions all the time how to improve this, what's effed up about that, and all the rest of it. So I think the diversity in thought is actually there just because we're humans. And people need to be sort of liberated to recognize that it's okay to express it. And not just okay, it should be welcome to express it. I mean, you should be welcome always to express it. And I do think that's a leadership issue in part. And if the chemistry is wrong in the group and you've got some, let's just call them knuckle draggers who want everybody to sort of be on board with what they think, well, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge for leadership to put them back in their place and elevate some, uh, not elevate some other people, but at least make sure that everybody recognizes that other ideas are valued even more. Then knuckle dragging is a thing of the past. And what's needed today, I mean, this, this is me now, what's absolutely needed today is what I say, wiliness, wild, being able to finesse problems more than force your way through problems. And that requires guys being willing to throw out all sorts of trial balloons in terms yeah. of ideas. So I think what I want to do, just nuance here, is I want to amplify what you're saying, which is that any team has to find ways to provide freedom from conformity, which is to allow yep. novel ideas to be surfaced and talked about. At the same time, what I would posit, what the research would say is that, Anna, you and I, would literally think about a dark city street differently because you're a woman and I'm a man. We would think going to Somalia differently. We would think about certain situations differently because of our biology. This isn't to me to say any one of them's better or worse. It's just that yeah. our, that our yeah. lived experience yeah. has required certain choices to get made or forced certain choices to get made that you've had to make that I haven't and vice versa. And so I think there is a there is a nuance between, you're right, between like-minded group, whether it be female Guatemalan banjo players or, you know, soft guys, that there is freedom within that capacity to be, have nonlinear or outside thinking and not being conformist. And there's the recognition that those female Guatemalan banjo players literally come from a place where they're going to come up with some things I just wouldn't have thought of because I was, yeah. I'm not female or Guatemalan and I don't play the banjo. Yeah, no. And that, that speaks directly to what you were saying before, which is before deployment before. And again, I, I think this is much more important when people may be facing combat, right? The yep. whole interchangeability thing, but before a deployment, around a deployment, back at the base or the compound or whatever it is where people are living, that stuff 
is absolutely critically important. I mean, you know, what do you see? A lot of the absolute brightest military intelligence officers are women. Why is that? So lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds have lots of incredibly important stuff to bring to the table. The question is, are sort of the isolation, the self-isolation, right? Or the exclusiveness. There's a time for that and a place for that. And maybe it should be more curtailed, actually, not curtailed, but, you know, the time and the place may be more limited than people realize. Although I do think it has to be treated as more or less, not sacred or sacrosanct, but I, I do think people have to realize how important it is. So you don't want the team to have to look diverse for the sake of looking diverse. That's right. Um, but you want the team, as you're, as you're indicating, you want it to be able to think diverse. And there's a time and a place for thinking in those ways. And there may be a time and a place where that actually becomes detrimental. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's a great place to start wrapping up, which is, you know, we need to separate performance from substance. There is a substance of neurodiversity, which is incredibly important for us to solve problems. There's a performance of diversity, which actually creates division and Mm -hmm. it can lead to conflict or inauthentic behaviors that aren't actually benefiting the building of trust. And so balancing Mm -hmm. those two out by understanding what's the goal, what's the purpose, why are we doing this really does matter, but it requires that we can have those conversations without everyone going to their corners. Yeah. And it also ties back to the, you know, does everybody need to know what you're doing? It should be good enough for you to be among other people with other people, the best at this thing, whatever, you know, if we go back to the division of labor, you yeah. know, whatever the labor, whatever the job, whatever the role, whatever the responsibility is, that should be sufficient. And yeah. if it's not sufficient, we've got a serious problem. And I do think we have some serious problems because it doesn't seem to be sufficient for a lot of young guys or women even who I think are coming in and wanting to do this stuff for the wrong reasons. It's for the adulation, or it's for the bragging rights, or it's for, I'm not exactly sure what it's for, but not necessarily the right reasons, and that's that's not good. So yes, I absolutely agree with what you said. So that pivots us towards sort of some closing comments. So as you think about the folks that are listening that are in charge of assessing, selecting, training, and educating mission-critical teams, and you think about the incoming population generation, the, the emerging problem sets that are out there, from an anthropological point of view, what are some advice that you might give folks to help them on Monday with the work that they're doing? So when it comes to younger people, this is what I this is what I think, and we did a a couple of us did a project on this a number of years ago for the Navy. I think young people want to be tested, and I think they want things to be hard. And I think we're coddling people. I think we're coddling them too much, and we're making excuses for young people, and they don't want excuses made for them. I mean, we heard from. I mean, this is a little bit tangential. I think it's really critical. I think holding people, you do more. For people, by holding them to a high standard, telling them you expect them to perform at that high standard, praising them when they do perform at that high standard, and not coddling them if they don't. I think nothing is more important for keeping this country still on track. I guess that would be my, I don't know that that's very helpful. I think it's um, but that would be what, what I could say. Treat them seriously. They're people. I mean, we had, I, I did something last spring and one of our grads who headed up the, well, he, he's an Air Force pilot 
and um, an incredibly successful one. And his commentary was, hey, the kids are different. They're just different. But that doesn't mean that you don't hold them to extraordinarily high standards. They're just as capable as kids have ever been. I agree. And and the fact is, is as I said this often, I didn't know what a hard day's work was until someone showed me. I think kids still want to serve. They still want hard things, just as you said. Yep. But we have to start acting yep. like elders and help them learn that stuff. Yep. And want it. We have to yep. help them want it. Yep. And that is also critically important, right? And a truth in advertising. So you can't just constantly be trying to recruit people in by showing them that they're going to jump out. I mean, the, the, there's a drudgery involved in service, right? It's not, it's not all fun. And you have to be honest about that. And that also helps because it means when there is fun or when there is drama or when there is, I don't want to call, say, conflict or a situation is always fun because it isn't. But that's the stuff that you end up remembering. But it's in part because the rest of the job is just sort of, routine and sometimes boring and sometimes annoying. Yeah. Dr. Anna Simons, I want to thank you so much for coming onto the team cast today. It was a great conversation. I was, it hit all the points I was hoping to hit and uh, I know you're busy and I appreciate your time. Oh no. Thanks a lot, Preston. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm going to make a pitch again. Everybody who's listening, soldier secretary is actually very insightful, incredibly fast read. Awesome. Thank you for joining us in the team cast. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.